Okay, well, let me offer a, a welcome to you to our winter Sunday school term. Uh, we are very excited. This is always, uh, I'm, I'm not even uh, being facetious when I say that it's one of the highlights of my year uh, that I look forward to uh, this uh, particular series. So in that spirit, if I could offer up just a brief word of prayer, we'll pray before we start. Uh, Lord Jesus, we uh, know that the angels long to look into uh, your gospel uh, because you've told us as much, and so we want to look into it uh, for the next three months on Sundays, and what that means is, is we hope to discover things about you that we didn't know before. We'd hope to discover things about ourselves that we didn't know before, and so we pray that you would visit us with your spirit, uh, that you encourage us to always ask because you always give, and so Father, as we dive into these things and see uh, the mysteries unfold, would we take great joy from them? Would they be transformational to us? Uh, would, they, would they gird us up for acts of service and deeds of mercy? Uh, Father, all the things that the discovery of your gospel brings, we pray for them uh, to be a part of our uh, time on uh, Sunday mornings. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, what I want to do is to uh, do like we normally do at the beginning of each series in the winter, and that is to place uh, this discussion that we're going to have uh, on the Christian order of salvation uh, into a larger context of how we do our Sunday school. Um, I have been uh, given the real joy of the winter term uh, in Christ Presbyterian Church because the winter term is our term that's focused on theology. Uh, your fall term and your spring terms tend to be focused uh, on Bible study, on sort of um, uh, exposition and uh, uh, surveys of Bible texts and sometimes multiple chunks of Bible texts. But in the, in, the, um, in the winter, we turn to the question of theology. Now, obviously, we don't believe that those two things are in conflict. <laughs> there may be some of you that are like, oh, here we go. I like it when we talk about the Bible because the Bible is the Bible. Now we've got to talk about theology, and that just seems like that's just going to bring up arguments and people disagreements and whatever else. Well, we actually believe that it's possible and actually a, a, a noble human task, one that we're inevitably doing anyway, to take all of the insights that we get from Scripture and synthesize them. If you think about it, it's just a basic human activity. We're always looking at the things around us, the stuff that comes at us, and we're trying to make sense of it. And as we try to make sense of it, it comes out in these broad categories that we draw out. That is the work of theology. Uh, there's a whole group of study, if you ever wanted to get into it, around people who are biblical theologians and people who are systematic theologians. Um, and here at this church, we don't believe those two things are in conflict with each other. So that's sort of the reason why during the wintertime we turn our attention towards uh, uh, theology in, uh, in general. Um, and in speaking about that, we can even be more specific uh, because for our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, um, we actually have as given to us by sort of our founding fathers of this denomination, a doctrinal standard. Uh, that is, there is a document that is about 350 to 400 some odd years old that was written and produced by a group of very godly people in Western Europe uh, back a few centuries ago uh, called the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you've never heard of this document, it's really just simply that. It's a way of taking the sort of some teaching, the big ideas that came out of the Protestant Reformation and summing them up in a really nice, easy packaged 
paragraph statement form. It's a confession. It's a statement of the stuff we believe. Does that make sense? If you don't have a copy of the confession, you need to get a hold of one. They're super cheap. You can actually find uh, uh, multiple copies of it online if you check it on your phones. Uh, The Westminster Confession is a wonderful tool to help God's people understand what the Bible teaches in its broad categories in small digestible chunks. So, for the last few years, what we've been doing is, is we've been taking sections of the confession and turning them into Sunday school series. Uh, we talked many years ago about the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, we went a few years ago to the attributes of God, talking about the nature of God. Uh, we talked uh, last uh, year uh, about the doctrine of, of man, the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of Christ, some of the big sort of... Uh, Uh, sweeping issues from uh, the confession. Well, what we come to this particular term is a big chunk of about a third of the confession's teaching right in the middle where they lay out for us what we're going to call the order of salvation. And I'm going to unpack that as we go through it. But I just wanted to always give sort of a nod that there's some method to the madness that you're getting when you come to Christ's prayers and get involved in Sunday school which, of course, we love for you to be involved in Sunday school because it's a place for us to be able to interact on some of these bigger issues, okay? So the way that I wanted to begin this discussion, and today all I want to do is introduce what uh, what we mean when we talk about the order of salvation, is I wanted to sort of open up with a bit of uh, personal testimony about my own particular religious upbringing, uh, which would not be interesting at all to you unless we were studying this topic. Uh, because it was in studying this particular topic that a lot of things began to turn around for me. Um, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, was raised and went to high school uh, there, uh, even stuck around to go to college at uh, what then was Memphis State University, now is the University of Memphis, uh, and didn't even leave Memphis really to live any other place until I went to go to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi in 1991. Well, when I was in Memphis, I uh, was, uh, grew up actually very early from ages like one to five uh, in a Baptist church, good old Southern Baptist church, Colonial Baptist, right there in the sort of uh, south part of Memphis. Uh, uh, don't really have a lot of memories from that particular uh, area, except most of my extended family continued to attend there for many years afterwards. But my parents, sometime around my youth time, uh, moved into uh, what that time was a little bit novel. Uh, and that was a non-denominational church. Um, this church was um, uh, still existing. It's actually up in Collierville now, just outside of Memphis. Um, but Central Church was a place that was um, extraordinarily kind to me. And the reason I'm going to open it that way is because I've got to be a little critical of my experience there. But before I'm critical of my experience there, I want to, in case there's someone listening sort of out there in the podcast world, um, I am extremely grateful for the individuals that, were, that had their hands uh, in my life uh, during my time at that church. And there were people that loved me very, very well uh, while I was there. Uh, and none of my comments of critique about my experience there are intended to take anything away from my thankfulness from those people who offered that to me. I think a lot of us feel that way, depending on where we came from. But because it was a non-denominational church, it tended to sort of pick up whatever sort of um, religious vibe was sort of going on at that time. 
Uh, in the 1970s, the church was largely dominated by a simple, basic, revivalistic, uh, 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 old school, you know, uh, scripture preaching uh, 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 church. In the 1980s, I think we got swept up very big into the church growth movement, where the idea was to see just how large and how big these churches could get by offering various programs. In the 90s, it sort of had a big wave of the charismatic movement come in, some uh, interesting sort of uh, 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 theologies of the, of the Holy Spirit coming on there. But I came up in this context and sort of in this religious world that put a very strong evangelistic inf- emphasis on our experiences at church. Most of the things that went on in the church that we were entertained with at the church were really centered around this this, this event, this experience of coming to Christ in salvation. Um, And I listened very carefully during most of these uh, services. Some of you may have grown up in these particular worlds that really the point, the goal of the service or the meeting or the youth retreat, uh, 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 any kind of outreach event was trying to get you to think about what it meant for you to become a Christian. And usually these were always followed at the very end by some kind of invitation for you to respond. Um, This invitation would go out in such a way that would be described as, you know, maybe some of you tonight, as the word is being preached, are really feeling like the Holy Spirit is, is, is knocking on your door. And that Jesus is approaching himself to knock on your door and and drawing you in and wants you to come to him. And so if you really feel that, it might be that tonight is the night. Like this could be the place for you to respond to Jesus in faith and come to him and know him as your personal Lord and Savior. A lot of lingo kind of got wrapped up in some of this whole uh, uh, sort of thing. (coughs) So I knew as a child, you got to understand that from my very earliest of ages, I thought that the whole point of a church service was to get to the end and to get people to ask Jesus into their heart. That really was the the whole expectation. Um, And I remember, the the things that I remember now, at almost at age 49, um, (laughs) we're getting close. I will be unbearable this time next year, let me assure you. Um, But the things that I remember was the sense of urgency in all of these preachers. You know what I mean? I knew that they wanted me to do something. <laughs> I knew that they, and they were very explicit about that. They did want me to do something. Oftentimes, they would want me at the very end to pray a prayer along with them. If you really are feeling this, I want you to close your eyes and pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you come into my heart and save me? Uh, amen, and be my Lord, etc. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, then they would say, then what I would like for you to do is I would like for you to come forward. There's some men up here at the front. It's amazing how well I can recite this. <clears throat> um, there's some men up here in the front who would love to pray with you and get you some literature and whatnot. And so one of my earliest memories, right back in most of my early memories growing up, were centered around these experiences. But there was something inside me that just knew um, there were eternal issues at stake And I was not ready. (laughs) And since the last time we had talked about this particular topic, things really had not changed for me. And so I knew very intuitively that there was something that needed to happen. And so I was that guy who prayed the prayer and asked Jesus into his heart over and over and over again. Um, it, It was to the point where in my high school years, when I would go on the youth retreats, 
my youth director would have this look on his face, kind of like, again? You know, because I'd be like, well, off we go, you know. <laughs> it didn't take effect since last time, and so, all right, I guess we're going to go do this again, hoping that at one point, and I may have even, I might have even phrased it this way had I been pressed upon the question. Um, it just didn't take last time. You know what I mean? I keep hoping there's a lot of earnestness, there's a lot of, of energy that's wrapped up, but it just didn't take. It kind of slid off me, but I, I forgot. I got distracted. And the whole time, my salvation felt just slippery, like a bar of soap, you know, in your bathroom that sort of you're trying to, it just kind of goes, whoa. It, all, it never was something that felt like I was holding on to. And y'all, actually to make it worse, and, and I'll say this, this did not mark my time uh, when I was in this church, but they were experiences that I had at this church that were strangely and often tolerated. Uh, there was one individual uh, speaker that was a, a known and very popular speaker on many of our youth retreats. Uh, he was a man who ran a homeless mission uh, in the inner city of downtown Memphis and was a member of our church and was himself a larger-than-life character. He's rather sort of a big dude, um, very loud and would scream, and he dealt with these homeless men all day long and people that were sort of on skid row and sort of come to the end of their rope. And he was known for his hell series. And I can remember as a junior high, from sixth grade to eighth grade, I'll go ahead and say it, being subjected to this man who would scream at us. Uh, that they were, He would talk about all these experiences he had with these men coming in and out of the homeless mission. And he would say, that man is burning in hell. He's burning in hell. And would scream. And we would all kind of sit in our chairs. And like it really got to this point where you know, when you're a teenager, you know, as a dude, you're always, you, you sort of bet each other, I'll bet you can't so-and-so-and-so. It got to be where, like, living through one of this man's sermons was like a dare. Um, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, you know, so-and-so's coming, he's going to do his hell sermons. Really? All right, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, can I make it and sit down in my seat for long enough for this whole deal? In high school, I remember sitting through a film that was shown to us. There was one particular night, we had something that was kind of a version of a revival uh, you know, that you, some of you grew up in churches where we, we're going to have a revival next weekend, which is a really interesting way to talk about it. Hopefully by the end of the series, you'll understand why that phrase um, is a little weird to me. Um, but they, they showed a film that I will never forget. It was one of those extremely, you can imagine, as I was probably in ninth grade, younger than my, my, my daughters. Um, and I was sitting in, in, in the same, watching this film, and it opened up, it was maybe 20 minutes long, with a man sitting down at the table with his wife and child. And they were enjoying breakfast and just talking about the, the day. Well, it turns out that the man in the story was a railroad operator. He was the man who ran the switches at a particular juncture in their little small town that they were at that allowed a train to pass over a large truss. Is it truss or trussle? What do you call the, a train bridge that's kind of got the suspensions on it? Russell. He was the one who ran those switches. Well, there's all this sort of emotion that's built up between the man and his maybe, you know, six or seven-year-old child, um, and he kisses him and hugs him and says goodbye to him and goes off to work. Well, when he gets into work that day, he finds that there's something wrong. The mechanical switches are not working, and the only way in which he can guarantee that this particular train that's coming down the, 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 the tracks can make it across the trussle is if he manually holds it. He's got this little 
stick or something that he's using to hold it in place. Well, little does he know that his wife has realized that he's forgotten his lunch that day. And his wife sends the small six or seven-year-old child to run after him to go to bring him his lunch. Well, the child decides that he's going to run to him on the actual train tracks where the train is coming. Do you see where this is going? So literally, there's this, the last scene is of this man manually holding the switch because there's hundreds of people on the train that are coming around, but then his own child is coming down to bring him his lunch on the very trestle. And you see the camera kind of zooms in on this man's face as there's tears streaming down his eyes where he sacrifices his own son for the lives of the people on the train. And it ends. And then, it, and then John 3.16 comes up and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, <laughs> look. I'm going to tell you, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I don't know how you define emotional manipulation. Um, really, and I'll say this, like speakers have got to be careful. They really are. You, you've got to be careful when you stand up to speak to someone that this is an intimate, strange moment where people come and present ideas. And it, it's a terrifying thing to sort of bring things that, are, that unnecessarily pull on people's heartstrings. You've got to be very careful about those things. But in ninth grade, I mean, it was, it was a traumatic experience. I'm still, however many years later, uh, reflecting on that. I mean, I sat through religious evangelistic gimmicks to no end. I have nailed my sins to a wooden cross. You know, I wrote my sins down a piece of paper and nailed them to a cross. Uh, I, I was instructed on numerous occasions to get a mental image of my own tombstone and see what it was that I wanted written on my tombstone. Uh, I, I walked that aisle of youth, uh, youth group uh, 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 retreats over and over and again, hoping so much that my salvation uh, would sort of stick. So in retrospect, what in the world was happening in that time? And don't get me wrong, there's a part of which I wonder if like my entire ministry from age like 25 to now is just trying to resolve some of those conflicts from that particular time. So um, in retrospect, I'm not sure that my instincts were completely off because I knew that I wasn't living up to whatever standard the speaker was setting forth. And I knew that things had not really sort of changed since the last time uh, I had prayed to receive Christ, and so it needed a little more oomph. But y'all, things really did not change for me in any substantive way until when I traipsed off to seminary, one of the first series that we did was the one that we're getting ready to do these next few weeks. On the order of salvation, things began to change. There were a handful of preachers, one in particular, who when I would go and hear them speak, it just sounded different. I didn't know why it was different, I didn't know what was unique about it, but when I went away to seminary, I began to have that experience in class that I had when I was listening to those other preachers, and it was simply this. My attention began to shift off of what I was responsible to do for Jesus and onto what he had done for me. That was the magic, <laughs> and everything changed, and it's not been the same ever since. My attention began to shift on what I was responsible for in my salvation and onto what he had done on my behalf. And it was a massive tectonic shift that took place in my own soul, and I've never really actually recovered from it. Um, I have since come to believe, this is so funny, I had this hilarious picture I wanted to put up. That was the young man suffering under all these experiences. 
Look at that right there. Uh, yeah, we could talk a lot about that right there. But we're not going to do it. Um, I was going to have that up the whole time, but that would have been distracting because look how, look how attractive he is right there in his personal reflections. <laughs> That's exactly right. And goo-goo cluster in my teeth uh, is what that is. Um, look, I have since come to believe, and this is another thing I hope that will explain a little of my method, that the inertia in every single person's heart is to draw you into thinking that the origins of your salvation are in yourself. Sin has accomplished something, and that is to make you hopelessly inward. That is to look and accomplish something that always wants to be taking credit for your own salvation. I had a mentor of mine years ago who coined this wonderful little phrase that we are all suffering from Arminian withdrawal. (laughs) Arminians believe that salvation actually really does have a substantive key in your own action towards God. The Calvinist believes that salvation is of the Lord. And what happens is, is over time, God is trying to sort of get us to lean off, get off of our own understanding and lean upon what he has done. We all struggle with this reality. We all, it's for this reason throughout the history of Christianity, Christians have found a deep comfort. And that's where I'm going with this series is to find the deep comfort in tracing the lines of our salvation through each and every divine action that God enacted on our behalf that would eventually lead us to glory. Let me say that again, because that is the definition of what we mean by the order of salvation. Christians have throughout history traced the lines of salvation through each and every divine action that leads us eventually to glory. There was a theologian back in 1737 called Jacob Karpov, a Lutheran theologian who coined the Latin phrase, ordo salutis. The ordo salutis is Latin simply for the order of salvation. In other words, it's simply describing the discrete steps, if you will, of actions that are taken by God as he applies the redemption that he has accomplished for us directly into our lives. Does that make sense? That you can actually look at what God has done and identify discrete steps things which are themselves able to be described and understood each in in an individual way. The inspiration for this comes to us from Romans 8, 29, and 30, and in many ways will be sort of our foundational anchor text for this study. Paul says, for those, notice what he does here, for those whom he, God, foreknew, those he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we start with with an image of foreknowledge, We then move to the idea of predestination in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There's another another one, called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is tracing for his people in Romans 8 that there actually are steps that God has and will take to eventually bring you to glory. We're actually going to work on a slightly expanded version of that particular list uh, that theologians have gotten to where we use, at least the one that the confession uh, largely uses, and it looks like this. We're going to begin with this introduction this week, and we're going to move on in weeks to come to this particular list. Union with Christ. 
If I can get through union with Christ in one week, it will be a miracle. So come next week. Um, That may go to two weeks. We'll talk about the doctrine of election and what all this stuff about predestination means uh, from Romans 8. We'll talk about the question of calling and what the Holy Spirit does when that calling actually takes place in someone's heart. Regeneration, the new birth. What is Jesus talking about when he says that all of his people need to be born again? to even see the kingdom of God. What does he mean? We'll spend two weeks talking about conversion. And that is what it is that happens in us. The real broad definitions of repentance and of faith. Really two sides of the same coin. We'll then move on to the the big three, in my opinion. Justification. The big doctrine of justification. We'll get to the end of January. Um, Uh, where we talk about that legal sense of God declaring us to be righteous in the heavenly courtroom. Adoption, that he doesn't just do this in a legal sense, he does this in a family sense, where he brings us into his family. Sanctification, that process whereby God begins to clean us up and turn us into the people that he wants us to be. Perseverance, how do we know that if I've got this salvation, I'm going to stick with it throughout the rest of my life? Do I have a real foundation for assurance of my salvation to know that God is really with me? And then finally, to kick off with the, to finish it all with the big one, glorification. What does God have in store for us in that final chapter in heaven? The order of salvation, the ordo salutis, is our sort of uh, our study. The golden chain of salvation is what some people will call it, and that will be our topic of study. Okay. Before we finish this, though, I wanted to run into a couple of things that often happen uh, as people are thinking through this topic. Uh, and that is some of the limitations, first of all, uh, on the Ordo Salutis, and then talk about the joy in the Ordo Salutis. I think there's something, uh, there's some real beauty uh, here as well. Um, first of all, let's talk about some of this that might feel a little bit weird to some of you. Um, and it comes under sort of two headings. First of all, what's not in the list that I just gave you? And second of all, the fact that there's a list at all <laughs> will chafe with some of you. Let's take this first one. First of all, what the list didn't include, that little list that I went through, did you notice there's some things that might feel kind of important to you that were not in the list, right? Uh, for instance, there's not anything in there about the cross. Um, I thought that the cross was kind of a big deal, less. Um, uh, there's nothing in there about this imagery that God gives us of, of, of Jesus marrying his church, uh, uh, of sort of the intimacy of marriage in there. And not only that, there's really not a, a, a statement in there in the Ordo Salutis that we're looking at that talks about the corporate sense of our salvation. And so a lot of times people look at this list and they're kind of like, ah, there seems like there's some really important things there that didn't make it to the list. Why? Well, the answer to that is, the, the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, is not a list of the most important things. That's not what it is. It's not trying to say, look, of all the things that are in the Bible, these are the big ones. It's not what it's trying to say at all. As a matter of fact, you'll get a varying degree of, uh, of ink spilled in the Bible about any of these given topics as you go through them. It's not given because it's the most important things. Rather, it's given to us to talk about how all that good stuff that God has accomplished for us in His Son Jesus gets applied to us. So there's a theologian whose name you need to know. 
This is just one of those things that like, you know, why do I need to know this, Les? Just trust me, you need to know it. It's important. I now sound like a teacher. Um, it won't be on the test, but you need to know the name of this guy. In the 20th century, probably one of the greatest sort of American theologians, he actually was Scottish-born, so I'm not sure we can claim him, uh, is a man by the name of John Murray. Uh, Dr. Murray taught at uh, a seminary in Philadelphia called Westminster Theological Seminary, a very big uh, seminary uh, for a lot of uh, uh, our denomination's pastors. And uh, John Murray's most well-known book that he wrote was a book called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. And for Dr. Murray, that was the way he broke this down. There was redemption accomplished, which was the cross, and all of God's work, sort of past, present, and future, to sort of build a salvation that could be perfect. It really thinks about the nature of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But then, in the second section of the book, there's redemption applied. And the way in which it is applied is able to be teased out, if you will, into these particular headings. Does that make sense? In other words, we're not necessarily looking at an order of salvation, but we're looking at an order of a part of salvation. A part of salvation that exists to us to teach us one thing. And it's kind of what I've been talking about this whole time. <laughs> what it does is it tries to ask, what is God doing in my heart? How does God work in each individual heart? It ought to have occurred to you, if you are a Christian this morning, to ask this question. How did God save me? How did I get here? <laughs> you might have asked yourself the question, what am I doing here? <laughs> That's a great question to ask if you come to church. What exactly are we doing here? Because the answer to that question is to give us, from the Ordo Salutis, salvation in an orderly way to sort of talk about how it applies into these hearts. In other words, it looks at sort of what God has done in the past and brings all of that past directly into my human experience and shows me exactly how God te teased this out. And so what you'll find is, is in each discrete step of the order of salvation, there's a brand new thought that'll just open up to you, a brand new idea that can be beautiful and well taken. And that brings me to the second sort of objection, which is people who are like, ah, I don't like the list thing. Um, you know, last, isn't it true that like, this is more you groovy people, the sort of 60s leftovers out there who are kind of thinking, ah, I'm, you know, this is, this is your scholastic kind of like a, I don't know, this is like an, it looks like an engineer put this together. <laughs> like the engineers are the worst people in the world, you know. Um, um, it just seems, it seems a little overly, I don't know, this like this step, you know, step one, step two, step three. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Isn't our salvation a much more organic kind of thing, dude? Um, <laughs> This is what's funny. I actually embraced this objection. It's so funny. Um, I'm making fun of it, but it's not, it's, you know, it is a little silly to suddenly think that all of a sudden I can stop and be like, wait a minute, what step am I in right now? Is this justification or is this adoption? Wait a minute. Notice that the list is not, can I use this word, chronological? You know what I mean when I say that? It's not a list of like, you know, and then justification, adoption. In many ways, all of these things occur really at the same time. This is not like a, a temporal thing. It's like, well, you know, I made it to adoption, but that sanctification thing I'm putting off until later on. Because that's where apparently I got to change and become a better person. I ain't doing that. <laughs> that's not the way the order works. That's not the way it's sort of listed out for us. Rather, of being a chronological order, it's what we might call a 
logical order. Does that make sense? It's kind of a way of saying, this is what must necessarily come next. This is going to get really, really big when we talk about the relationship of regeneration to conversion. Remember how I put regeneration before conversion? Look, this is a very big deal. Jesus says in John 3, we're going to talk about this a whole lot here in a few weeks, that you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. So there's a lot of people, though, that think that I'm not born again until I repent and believe. So which comes first? Do I repent and believe in order that I might be regenerated and become born again? Or am I born again by the free spirit of God, and on the basis of that I respond in repentance and faith? Some of you are already bugged by that question. You've got got like a a low-grade harumph somewhere inside of you. It's just waiting to come out somewhere. Um, (laughs) But here's the deal. And all that is is a teaser. Come back for weeks to come, and we'll see sort of where this all goes. Um, Look, but here's the deal. I'm actually going to go to these people and say, this is a point well taken. And it may be that sort of if you're sort of an engineering type and you like to tease this out a little over the much, you might miss something that's beautiful about this, which is the reason why we chose the image of the gem. So uh, it was really not that long ago when I took my adventure to go, it was a little over 20 years ago, to, to purchase Ginger's engagement ring. This is a big moment, guys. You know, youth group people, like hopefully this is coming. And Kennard can't wait to buy his uh, wife's uh, uh, gem here. He loves having his name called out in front of everybody as well. Um, so I go to the jeweler, right? And I have had been coached in the four C's of buying a diamond. Cut, carrot, clarity, and color. See, the ladies are all recited because they know it. <laughs> Gentlemen, take note. They understand what makes a good diamond. You've got to understand these whole deals. So I go in and I understand exactly what an inclusion is. I know that there are carbon spots that will oftentimes form inside a a diamond that will affect its its, uh, sort of luster and its particular look. And I sit down and I'm I'm a little bit, I'm a little fed up because it's a little bit of a bother like it is any any romantic thing that a guy does. He's a little bothered by it. (laughs) Thank you. That was funnier than anybody else got in. Um, Well, I got to these flowers. (laughs) He always seems put out, doesn't he, ladies, by the fact that he's got to do something nice. But I'm sitting there in this jeweler's uh, place in Memphis, and I remember there was a young lady that helped me. Her dad went to uh, Independent Press and was nice enough to help me. And um, she did the whole deal. Like, she, she laid out this little black uh, uh, felt uh, carpet, you know, that's about yay big, on the desk. And she was like, okay, in your price range, <laughs> they always ask for that first, here's a handful of things that I think that you can take a look at. And I'll never forget sort of sitting there and being like, okay, and I was like, do I get to look through the little monocle thing? She's like, yes, of course, which was the best part of it, you know, to stick that thing in your eye, you know. And, you know, she sort of took the tweezers just like this. She took the tweezers and put it on either side of the diamond uh, in the picture, and it sort of sat there. And she was like, all right, now look. She goes, I don't want you to look from this particular angle, but I want you to look from this particular angle, and then I just want you to sort of twist it a little bit. And as I sat there and kind of got in close, and was trying to get it in focus, I was like, oh, okay, I see it. She said, now, just turn it just a little bit. And as soon as I did, it was like the little thing lit on fire. It just went boom with colors and a rainbow and light and everything. And I sat there and was like, whoa, to where you kind of wanted to do it again. Twist it again. Wow, good grief. And then you kind of moved it a little bit. It almost looked like it was in 3D for Pete's sake. 
And then the colors just, the colors got more complex every time you turned it a little bit. And I found myself spending an inordinate amount of time staring at the, you know, with a little monocle being like, this is really cool. And she was like, well, why don't we look at another one? I was like, I don't know, this one's pretty cool right here, you know, just sort of (laughs) stuck on the thing. In other words, there was something about the brilliance of a diamond that was its own reward just in looking at it. And it's kind of funny, every now and then Ginger will take that little solution that they give you to sort of clean uh, the diamond, look at it, and I'll kind of catch her looking at it, sort of staring at it. That's what a diamond does. The facets of the diamond end up cutting up into brilliance. And so that's what I want to do. Each week, I want to take this great salvation that Peter says the angels love to sit and look into. That's kind of cool that there's a heavenly library where the angels can't wait to get in and be like, let's look up something else today about how God saves his people. I mean, that's incredible. And so that's kind of what we're going to do. Every week, we're just going to turn the diamond just a little bit to see how that brilliance cuts up and see if it can be some way in which it sort of brings us. And that brings me to the next thing, and that is the joy in the Ordo Salutis. I think there's two places where you're going to uncover some joy here. First is we're going to rediscover the work of the Spirit. Um, There were a number of years ago, a great theologian um, um, uh, named R.C. Sproul, still kicking uh, down in Florida. Um, And uh, R.C. was sort of my first introduction uh, into... Uh, a Presbyterian and Reformed Westminster Confession of Faith type of theology. Uh, And I remember years ago reading a book uh, by him called The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. He's got a ton of books. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a funny joke about how many books R.C. Spill has written, but we'll get to that later. Um, Anyway, R.C. did this book on the mystery of the Holy Spirit, and he opens up his book on the Holy Spirit by describing the Holy Spirit as if he is the shy member of the Trinity. You ever heard anybody say that? Three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? That's the weird one, right? And some of you are kind of thinking, I came to a Presbyterian church because I didn't want to talk about that. We don't have the Holy Spirit here. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Babylon Bee, um, which is this uh, wonderful Christian satire uh, online uh, thing. Um, And one of my favorite sort of headlines, it's kind of like the Christian onion, but like not poorly done. It's like really well done. And they said that um, a Presbyterian congregation inadvertently pulls off mannequin challenge during Sunday worship. <laughs> because nobody moves. You're just going to stand there. Nobody moves. Um, <laughs> and an, that's exactly that's right. Or, or someone, there was also one about a uh, uh, young man loses his way during altar call because of uh, fog and smoke. Um, it's, again, funny to a handful of you. Look, what's the point? The point is when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, does that mean that I've got to move? You know, because I'm really happy being very stationary in church. Thank you very much. Um, the Holy Spirit is that one that we just sort of don't know that much about. Well, it turns out that R.C. got him into a little bit of trouble by calling the Holy Spirit shy. And um, a number of years after that, there was a book written by probably my favorite living theologian. That is a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is now pastoring in Scotland, but he visits over in America all the time to teach. Uh, And Dr. Ferguson actually took issue with R.C. in his book on the Holy Spirit, where he said, look, the deal of what the Holy Spirit does is this. Anytime anything spiritual happens in you, anything, whether you thought to yourself, you know what, I should really pray for them. 
or you thought to yourself, you know, we should like bring them a meal or something. Or you thought to yourself, you know, tomorrow's worship, and so we better get up uh, pretty early. And um, what happened to the picture? What happened to the picture there? We're going to blame. Um, yeah, exactly. Either that, or we're just going to blame. We're just going to blame um, Errol. When in doubt, blame the. Uh, yeah, exactly, Errol Sayer. Blame the geek. Oh, that's the end of the show. Hold on. I want my pictures up. There we go. Is it up? There we go. <clears throat> Every time you thought to yourself, I need to go to bed early because tomorrow's worship. Every time you said to yourself, you know what? I think I've got some time this morning. I really am going to read through that that Bible verse that that we studied at church. Every time you looked to yourself and was like, you know what? I treated my children unfairly. I, I need to apologize to them. Every time you wake up and think, you know what? My marriage has been in this state for way too long. We're going to do something about this. We're going to go see a counselor. We're going to go talk to somebody. Every time that happens, are you ready? Dr. Ferguson says, that is the Holy Spirit working. Anything to the tiniest spiritual impulse that you have, to the largest, most earth-shattering, twisting events of your spiritual life, that's the Holy Spirit working. And so what Dr. Ferguson was saying is like, look, you can, it's absolutely right. Because what R.C. Sproul meant was when he said that the Holy Spirit was shy, was he was trying to say that what the Holy Spirit always does is point us to Jesus. And he's actually right about that. The Holy Spirit's role, you'll know that you've kind of missed it, R.C. was saying, when you are overly uh, sort of uh, concerned with the workings of the Spirit. Because he said that's not what the Spirit does. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself. He draws attention to Jesus. He's always pointing away from himself. That's what he meant when he said he was shy. And in that sense, he's correct. But for what Ferguson said was, he said, but to think of the Holy Spirit who is engaged in all this activity, he's always on the move as being shy. It just doesn't seem to fit very well. So what I think you're going to find is, as you go through the order of salvation, you're going to find that every week there's something of insight that the Holy Spirit's doing. And it almost sort of brings the Holy Spirit back into your living experience in a real beautiful way. But then lastly, there's there's an assurance of salvation. This is such a big deal. The order of salvation is a useful way to keep my eyes on the fact that Scripture clearly teaches that from beginning to end, salvation is a work of the Lord. From the very beginning of human history, God's plan from all of human history was to find a bride for His Son. Why is there a world? Why is there a me? Why is there time? Why do I exist? You exist Because from before the foundations of the earth, there was a God who made a determination that he was going to find a bride for his son, for his only son. And therefore, all of the events of life are giving themselves to this great event so that in the end, one day, there will be a great wedding that will happen between the prepared bride and the God's only son, Jesus. That is where all of human history is headed for us. So that from beginning to end, what we are doing is we are seeing that Jesus is the one, God is the one who began and ordained and oversaw and executed and provided for and sustained your salvation. The goal of this is for you to decrease and for him to increase. In other words, to realize that when Jesus died on the cross, 
He did not die simply to make salvation possible for you, dependent on how well you did towards him to get it. But when he died on the cross, he actually accomplished something. He actually won for us something, and it's ours because of his work. C.H. Spurgeon uh, said this. Spurgeon is fantastic, the great Calvinistic Baptist from the 1800s. He says, the thought struck me one day. How did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, well, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed from this to this day. I desire to make it my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly unto God. That's our goal. (laughs) That's what we want to do in the winter quarter is to get to where Spurgeon got. I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories with my children. Uh, You were kind enough many years ago to give us uh, an evening uh, in a hotel for Ginger and I to kind of get away and have a, a getaway. Well, we decided one particular evening just to have some fun with that particular gift certificate. And we got ourselves uh, a hotel room in the Hampton over on the west side of town, which was only about like less than half a mile away from our house. We lived behind <clears throat> the Home Depot. Well, we used to walk from our house to Chick-fil-A as a family all the time, which was great. We could walk over there and sit and have dinner. Well, Ginger and I had sort of plotted and planned this whole thing out. And uh, Ginger said, well, look, I've got to go back home. And I said, well, you know, I said, I think for the kids, we're just going to walk home. And they were like, okay, daddy. That's fine. They were really little at this time. And so uh, Ginger leaves to go home. Wink, wink, wink. Um, And so we get in, uh, we find out with the kids, we kind of start walking. I was like, you know, kids, I said, I've always, I've always wondered how we can do this little cut through back behind the belt here. Is there a way to get up on top of that big hill up there? Let's go see if we can do it. Okay, daddy. So we go kind of walking. We're on an adventure, right? We're kind of going out and walking around. We get up behind the little La Petite Academy there, and we'll sort of walk around. And I was like, you know something, kids? In that hotel across the way, they have some lions in the lobby. Y'all, back in the day, there used to be these stuffed lions in the lobby of the Hampton Inn on the west side. If you hadn't, they're not there anymore, which is a tragedy, because we used to go just to see these ridiculous lions. You just walk in, and you're like, oh, it's a Hampton Inn, where one gets a good night of sleep. And there's three big stuffed lions. Of course, it fit the decor perfectly. So we go over there to look at the lions, right? We're sort of sitting there, and I was like, you know what? I said, I'll bet you from the fifth floor we can see out over, you know, the town. Let's let's ride up in the elevator. And at this point, my children get a little nervous. They're like, uh, are we allowed to do that? Um, and so I was like, come on, let's go do it. So we kind of go up in the elevator, and sure enough, we go to the end of the hall, and there's a big, you know, window up there at the end of the hall, and you can see out over Walmart. Um, you know, look kids, there it is from the, from above. Um, and so I looked up and I said, you know what? I said, I have an idea. I said, why don't we knock on, (laughs) why don't we knock on one of these doors and then run away? You know, and just kind of see what happens. And I'll never forget. It's okay if I do this, sweetie. You're supposed to ask your kids permission to tell these stories beforehand. Um, my middle daughter, Caroline, was just perfect at that time. She looked at me, she goes, Daddy, that's ding-dong ditch, and that's illegal. 
And so I was like, come on, ding dong ditch. I never heard it called ding dong ditch. That's what they had come up with. Um, and I said, come on, let's just do it. I said, look, let's take this door right here, right? And so as I lean up to knock on the door, I look down the hall, and my oldest, Anna Grace, is sprinting down the hall. She has been like, we're done with the old man, okay? He's clearly lost it. He's done. And she has induced my son, my only son, to follow her. because He was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> when it comes to responsibility, usually Anna Grace is more responsible than Daddy, so we'll go with Anna Grace here. So. <clears throat> Caroline at least stuck with me for a little bit, but I was like, come on, let's just do it. And so I knocked on the door. And Caroline's like, kind of backing away. What's going on? And then opening the door is Ginger. She had, she had that particular hotel room. She kind of popped out. And Caroline was like, oh, uh, what? What? Like that. And I literally had to go and get Anna Grace and Luke from the elevator because they were sitting there, you know, punching the number, you know, trying to get down the elevator. The best part of that night was watching how long it took that evening for my children to have it wash over them. So you were in this all along. Look, that's what I want this series to do for all of us, that we suddenly wake up in the midst of a Sunday school and say, oh, man, God was in this all along. I've been out there thinking that this is just me hanging on for dear life and praying and hoping that I make it to heaven one day. When the truth of the matter is, is he's the one who's been at work all along. He was the one holding me. I sought the Lord, the old hymn says, and afterward I knew it was him who sought me, <laughs> seeking him. He was the one who came and got me first. It was not I that found, O Savior, true, but I was found of thee. That's where we're headed. So join us for our, our winter Sunday school. I've run out of time, so let me close with that, and we'll make sure we save time for questions in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, grant us the grace to, uh, to see with new eyes. Uh, Father, it's hard. It's hard to look at the world through your eyes. It's hard to see ourselves through your eyes. Some of us see ourselves very inaccurately. A lot of us give ourselves way too much credit. A lot of us give you way too little credit. Uh, so, Father, would you, would you transform us during this time that as we sort of turn our eyes to spin this gem, this glorious salvation, so great a salvation that the angels long to look into. Would you, would you wow us with a sense of wonderment that you've been in it all along, that this is not an accident that we're here, that you're working out your plan for our good and for your glory. Would you do that? We pray it all in Jesus' name.